Well, I had the blessing of, of preaching on the topic of blessing. <laughs> and uh, I had the blessing of my printer going out on me last night. So uh, <laughs> this morning I get to preach from a laptop, which is something I've never done before. So uh, we're going to experience this together. And that's too far out of my sight, so let's see. I think that'll work. So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you turn to Psalm 90, and I just want to say a few words just to open our time together. Psalm 90, you know, is the oldest psalm in the Bible, written by Moses after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And uh, what I wanted to say about this is how even in the difficult times, the, the 40 years they wandered in the wilderness uh, was tragic for the nation of Israel. They lost an entire generation of people. Uh, there were 60 funerals a day. Um, they lost thousands and thousands and thousands of people in that 40-year period. And yet, I wanted you to see how Moses opened the psalm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So even in the midst of their suffering and difficulties that they had for those 40 years, wandering, sort of as nomads, um, Moses comes out the other side and he still has praise on his lips. He still acknowledges God for who he is and what he has done for them and God's faithfulness to them. And, and his prayer request down in verse 12, I think, is, is really instructional for us this morning. He says, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. I'd like to say this morning, as you're turning to James 12, that life uh, requires wisdom to live. And, and that wisdom is uh, a skill that's developed. And for most of us, I think we don't really even take time to develop the wisdom to live life skillfully. And really, what James is going to teach us this morning is about counting our blessings in life. That even in the midst of difficulties and sorrows and trials, that we need to stop for a moment and assess the blessings that we have along the way. And I think that's what it means to live life in wisdom. To see God's hand of providence at work in your life, even in the midst of the hard times. And I think that's what James is going to teach us this morning. And as you are there uh, in 112, I'm actually going to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 12, because we haven't done that in a while. So let me just uh, pick up the reading in James 1.1. 1, 1. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. May God bless his word this morning as we talk about blessing in the midst of trials. Remember we said that James was written in the context of the early church falling under difficult times. They were being kicked out of their homes. They were being kicked off their lands. They were being persecuted. They were being killed. They were suffering for their faith. And James is the first writer of an epistle in the New Testament. And uh, I think uh, the context here, what we get is, unfortunately, some were accusing God of, of tempting them to sin by using the trials that God was bringing into their lives. So in other words, God brought the trial or this test into their life through his providence, and they're turning the tables and saying God is accusing them, uh, or they're accusing God, I can't get my words right this morning, sorry. They're accusing God of tempting them to sin through the trial. And so instead of blessing God and thanking him for the, the, the test of their faith and the growth that results from it, they instead blame him for uh, tempting them to sin. And James uh, teaching on this matter is that God tempts no one to sin, but he does test their faith through his hand of providence, in order to strengthen it and make them more Christ-like. So, the question is this, are we going to blame God in the midst of our trials? Or are we going to bless him for those trials? And that's really where James is going with us today. You can either view trials and temptations as blessings from God, or you can sin 
and error gravely and ascribe ill motives to God, and you can accuse him of tempting you to sin in the midst of the trials. And I found many counseling situations over the years where people actually blame God for their problems. It's not unusual. You may be here this morning saying, hey, I'm going through another situation here, and you're blaming God and saying, God is tempting me beyond what I can endure. I've actually heard people say that. And I think what we as believers have to do is we have to redefine what we call good. And this is, a, this is one of those uh, life wisdom lessons that I'm going to give to you this morning. Redefine what you call good according to, according to what God calls good. You may see it as something that's a tragedy or a difficulty, but from, from God's perspective, He may be using it for good in your life. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that all things work together for what? For good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. And so we know that God is at work in our lives for good, and we know that He uses trials to test our faith so that we might grow in Christ-likeness. That's what James is going to tell us, and that's what we're going to see this morning, is three blessings... And and this verse 12 here kind of stands out like a diamond uh, against a dark backdrop. Uh, James is going to give us three blessings to hold on to in the midst of our trials uh, so that we might see God's hand of blessing in the midst of our trials. You know, we all go through heartache. We all go through difficulties. There may be some of you here this morning that are experiencing Really tough times. In fact, in a room this size, I wouldn't doubt it. Really difficult days. And yet, in the midst of it all, there is blessing. And sometimes we just need to stop and smell the roses, as they say. You know, some folks have said uh, they wonder why God put thorns all around the roses. Another perspective is why God put roses among all the thorns. And in this verse, what we're seeing is three roses uh, amidst all of the thorns. So the first blessing, if you will, that we see in this verse is the process of approval. Verse 12. Uh, And all three points are in verse 12. But blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved... Stop right there. Believe it or not, the trial you may be encountering from God's perspective is a blessing. Because it tests your faith and it brings God's approval. Now, I know a lot of us, you know, we live in a psychologized world and everybody says that that's what life is all about is we're all seeking approval, right? We're all seeking approval. Well, in a sense, we are. We're seeking God's approval, but sometimes we get lost along the way and we seek the approval of others. But this is really talking about how to obtain the approval of God. This text is very clearly uh, what's known as a beatitude. 
I'm having a hard time seeing with my glasses. This is really messing me up. So Matthew 5 to 7, right? The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the first discourse of the king to the nation of Israel. And he starts out blessed, right? Blessed are you if this. Blessed are you if this. Blessed are the poor. Those are what we call Beatitudes. And what they really mean is happy is this man who does this. And here, uh, the same word is used. James stops everything and he says, blessed or happy is a man who perseveres or who endures or who holds up under trials. He's blessed. He's blessed out of his socks beyond belief, right? And it it just really stands as an encouragement in the midst of very, very difficult times. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to experience trials. But we all do. Right? And they are the means that God uses to grow us. I always say, if you, if you never experienced hardship or trials, would your faith ever grow? The answer to that question is no, it would not. But a beatitude is, uh, one writer said, a state of extreme blessedness. In other words, James is telling his audience that they are to consider themselves blessed if they patiently endure trials with eyes of faith. They're to rejoice. Uh, Look at verse 1-2, right? Consider it all joy. It's not joyful going through the trial, but you're to consider it that way because of what it accomplishes in your life. You're blessed because of your trials. Boy, is that a counter-cultural idea or what? This word trials here should be taken as real and actual trials or suffering, not temptations. Some of your translations may have the word temptation there, but I think the word is better translated trials than this verse. Temptations will be dealt with next time. But for now, he's talking about trials or suffering. And it's similar to verse 2. He says these early believers, they were having their faith tested. And they were blaming God for suffering trials. And they were blaming him, saying that he was tempting them to sin in the midst of their suffering. I think they were flat out missing the point. It is possible to flat out miss the point of trials as being designed as a test of your faith. They're not designed to tempt anyone to sin. They're designed by God to produce endurance and perseverance in the faith. And with the end result being maturity in faith in Christ-likeness. That's what tests are for. And it's only through... I like to watch YouTube videos, by the way. I know this is totally random, you're going to think. 
But I like to watch these guys in third world countries that take scrap metal and they put them in these really hot pots and they burn the metal down till it becomes liquid. And, and then they scrape the stuff off the top that's all the, all the junk until they get the pure metal underneath, right? And then they pour that metal into molds and they make pots and, and other things. And, and you just marvel at these guys in these third world countries using, you know, bearskins and stone knives and they make these beautiful pots. And I think to myself, that's what's being talked about here. That your metal is being tested. You're being purified as a believer. That when God puts you through trials and suffering, He's, he's skimming off the dross. He's purifying you. He's making you a more pure metal. Does that make sense? You're being refined and you don't even know it. But that's what God has promised to do. And that's how God uses evil in this world. He may make you suffer. He may bring about suffering in your life. But it's for a purpose. And again, that's what I'm saying. You have to redefine what you call good. Because good according to your standards means only good things happen to me, right? I have a big bank account. I have a big house. I have a nice car. Nothing ever happens to me. Bad. But how would your faith ever grow if everything went right for you in this world? Uh, look back at the text with me. Notice that it says, a man. That's what we call a generic masculine. And, and James has no specific man or person in mind here. It could very well apply to ladies too. We don't want to exclude our our sistren here. I'm sure they faced temptation to sin when their faith was tested as equally as men. But the important thing here to understand is that this man is already blessed. Right? He's already blessed because of the trial. And that's a hard perspective for us to get our arms around. Uh, James is, is encouraging the church that if they will persevere in the faith, if they will endure in the face of the testing, then they will gain the approval of God when it's over. On the other side of the testing comes the approval. Stop and think about that for a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor. That sounds like a works theology. Well, James' letter has often been uh, said to be, uh, I think Martin Luther was the one that called it an epistle of straw. He hated it because it, it tried to balance works with, right, faith. But James' point is not that we're saved by works. His point is we're saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. 
And what do I mean by that? I mean that genuine faith, pure faith, when it goes under testing, will produce good works. Genuine faith works. Other works don't merit anything with God. It's the faith that is exercised through the trial and the endurance that is shown and the patience and the fruit bearing along the way that on the other side of the trial, they become approved. Now look with me at the text. It's, it's very clear here by the tense of the verb. The text says literally, having become approved by means of the temptation or the trial. It's an aorist middle participle, whatever that means, right? It means it's past tense. It's past tense. Approval comes after the test, just like gold or silver once it's been refined. You refine the metal and then you look at it afterwards and you see what you have left. Right? There's a difference. I I sold a wedding ring, not my wedding ring, but... (laughs) But I had a spare wedding ring that I bought when, uh, I, I don't remember what the occasion was, why I bought it, but it, it was gold and I bought it for like 50 bucks. Uh, and I thought, well, uh, I needed some Christmas money. So I took this ring and I hawked it. And the guy took it and he, he took my ring and he scratched it on a block. And then he put some kind of liquid on it and it turned color. And he said, yeah, that's 18 karat gold. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And it was worth way more than I thought it was worth. I had a lot of Christmas money. <laughs> but, but he was able to test the metal to determine its value. That was the point. Once it has gone through the testing... It receives the approval of God. Don't miss out on the point here. Endurance in the faith through the testing is how these believers were to gain the approval of God. Look at verse 1-3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Right? And look at the string here. And endurance has its perfect result that you may be what? Perfect. It's the result. You endure by faith through the trial, and on the other side of it comes the approval of God. You are complete, lacking in nothing. So, the point here is that the whole process of testing is itself a blessing. Why? Because it leads to one's approval before God. You have to look for it, but it's there. And it means greater blessing and approval from God. So why would you not embrace the trial when it comes your way? Right? If you know the trial is going to be used by God for good in your life, why would you not embrace it? 
See, I'm trying to change your perspective here because what's the first thing we do when a trial hits in our lives? Complain. Thank you. We complain and we say, why is God doing this to me? Right? Isn't that, isn't that what everybody says? Why is God doing this to me? I don't need this in my life. Yes, you do. You absolutely do. See, God is, is sculpting you. He's, he's shaping you. He's, he's hammering you on the anvil. He's turning you into something useful for His glory. The Apostle Paul said it this way in uh, 2 Corinthians 10.18. He said, For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. One of the uh, commentators, Kurt Richardson, said this. He says, This clause means when the trial has been endured and is thus over, This implies that believers who out of love for God seek His wisdom are believers who are enabled to banish doubt from their minds and endure the test of this life. They therefore will be blessed by the God who has promised and who makes such faith a reality. You get through the trial on the other side and you look back and you're going to see that God has grown you through the trial if you have trusted him. Suffering for the sake of suffering is worthless. Right? But seeing God's hand in it will grow you. You know, we don't use words like pass or fail anymore, do we? Everyone is a winner, right? We have participation awards. But the reality is you're being tested right now. Your faith is being evaluated. What will you do? Will you gain approval through endurance and perseverance in the faith? Or will you cave in to sin and temptation and and fail the test? Will you turn on the God who is, who is providentially caring for you as a loving Father? Will you turn against Him in self-pity? Will you blame Him for your problems? Or will you embrace it as His best for you? I can honestly say the times of the greatest growth in my life have been some of the hardest times in my life. Truly. And I had to find God's hand in those things, lest I despaired and blame God. I don't like to suffer any more than the next guy. I got to tell you, I'm a comfort lover. (laughs) Just ask my wife. I'm a comfort lover through and through. I fully admit it. And when I get put in hard places, it's tough. 
But God uses those places and has used them in my life to grow me in ways that I could have never imagined. So what's the application here? Let me just say this. Purposeful suffering is Christ-like. You probably want to write that down. That's something you want to remember. Purposeful suffering is Christ-like. I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 5 on this. And I want to let your eyes drift down to verse 3 there. The Apostle Paul says, and by the way, the Apostle Paul is definitely somebody who is acquainted with suffering and grief, right? He says in Romans 5, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. What? Stop right there. (laughs) What? We exult in our tribulations? Woohoo! We enjoy them. We celebrate them. We praise God for them. Right? Knowing that the tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And I want you to keep reading to verse 6. For, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what in the world do those two passages have in common? Why are they linked together? Why are verses 3 through 5 linked with 6 through 8? Because purposeful suffering is what? It's Christ-like. Why do we exult in our tribulations? Uh, Let me ask you a second question. How did Christ gain the Father's approval? He suffered. He suffered on behalf of lost sinners. This is... uh, Notice verses 6 through 8. It starts off with the word for. In the Greek, it's what we call a gar clause. It means it's, it's subordinate and explanatory of what went before it. Okay? So, 3 to 5 is the statement. 6 through 8 is the explanation of what it means. Or why it's there. Or the because. It's not a separate context. It's all part of the Apostle Paul's flow of thought. And the point is, Jesus suffered and He died on behalf of sinful mankind when they were at their ugliest and least deserving. And that's why we can say purposeful suffering is Christ-like. Here's the trade-off that Jesus made. 
He gave his life so that sinners might gain eternal life. Let me ask you this question. Would you give your temporal life in the here and now so that sinners might come to know eternal life? Let me ask you another question. Which do you think has greater value? Your temporal life now, which will end one day, or their eternal life? Stop and think about that question for a minute before you answer in haste. Which one has more value? Something that is temporal or something that is eternal? The only way you would give this life for another is if you believed in an afterlife. And you believed in the eternal life that awaits you then. That's faith, huh? That's about as gnarly as faith gets. (laughs) Would you trade your temporal life for somebody else to have eternal life. That's what Christ did. And that's what He calls us to. It is faith that gains the approval of God. Hebrews 11.2 For by faith the men of old gained approval. That whole that whole list of people who suffered in Hebrews 11, um, even verse 39, for by faith the men of old gained approval. What? Endurance in faith in the midst of their trials. I mean, these guys were, were martyred. They were sawn in two. They went through all these trials and hardships, and they came out the other side, and they got God's approval. They gained a testimony through martyrdom because... They suffered in faith. Matthew 5.12 Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed is the man who suffers. Right? For Christ. The process of approval. Is there anyone in the room that does not want the approval of God? Raise your hand. I do. So patiently endure your suffering because on the other side of it, If you suffer with Christ, you will gain the approval of God. The second blessing in this verse is the promise of life. You see that? For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. If they would patiently endure the test and receive God's approval, then they would receive a spectacular reward. The crown of life. 
beyond imagination. And the crown, I mean, what is it? A lot of people have talked about this over the years. What is the crown? Where is it promised? Where does it ever say in Scripture we're going to get a crown of life? Remember, James was the first one to uh, to write an epistle in the New Testament, so he must be referring to the Old Testament, or he's referring to something Christ must have said in the Gospels, or he's referring to something else. We don't really know where this promise exists. There is no specific promise of a crown of life, per se, in the Old Testament. But rewards are promised for lives of faithfulness and piety. So what is, what is he talking about? What does James mean? What is the crown of life? Well, there's five possibilities, and I'll list them for you here. And I'll tell you the one I lean towards. The crown could be what's known as a wreath of victory. A wreath of victory. You can look at 1 Corinthians 9.25. You can look at 2 Timothy 2.5. The wreath of victory was given in athletic games, which is unlikely in this context because there are no games mentioned here. There's no games in the context, so it's unlikely that's what he's referring to. Second, the, the crown or a headpiece is a possibly a festal ornament. Again, there are no festivities going on here, so it's unlikely in the context. The crown could be an ornament of royal or priestly dignity. Again, nothing in the context of just a royal crown. Uh, royalty is not under discussion here. So really the last two options are probably what it boils down to. The crown is a public honor granted for distinguished service or public worth. Now you can look at 1 Peter 5.4 for that. Revelation 2.10. It's a a public honor, if you will. It's, It's granted for distinguished service like in the military. You get a medal. In this situation, you would get a wreath as an honor. The last option, which I lean towards, is that it's purely metaphorical sense of reward. It's just a reward. If you endure, you'll get a reward. And the pro-arguments for that is that crowns as rewards were familiar even before New Testament times. Before the New Testament writers wrote their letters, the crowns were in existence as rewards. And it's also possible, very possible, that by this time, the word crown had just come to be synonymous with the word reward. That's how people were using it in ancient writings. Well, you combine that with the phrase of life, the crown of life. And it gets a little more sketchy. (laughs) It's what we call in grammar uh, a genitive of apposition in the Greek. Apposition means it renames the first thing. And in other words, the crown which consists in life. Life itself is the crown. 
And by life, he means eternal or everlasting life. And in this, in this sense, this crown of life was the reward for victors who endured through trials. It was a reward. I think one thing that helps me in this process of understanding this idea of a crown as a reward is the First Peter 5-4 reference. It says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the And Peter inserts the word unfading crown of glory. And in this reference of faithful under shepherds or elders were promised that when Christ returned, they would share in his glory. And according to 1 Peter 5, 1, they would receive the prize of the unfading crown. So the crowns were meant as crowns of victory, which the faithful would receive after enduring their trials. And and I think the key is, as I said, this word unfading. And it's the Greek word amarantinos. Amarantinos. The Greek word is derived from a flower known as an amaranth or an amaranth, however you say it. I don't know much about flowers. I had to do a little research. But this flower, it was said, never withered, and it revived easily if it was moistened with water. And it came to be used as a symbol in ancient Greek writings of immortality. So the unfading became synonymous with immortal or eternal life. The amaranth is still to this day put in flower arrangements to symbolize now everlasting love. So the unfading crown of glory was simply immortality or everlasting life. The crown of life was life itself. Matthew 19, verses 29 to 30, everyone who has left houses or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or children, or farms for my sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. What does that phrase mean? Last first, first last. Everybody gets the same thing. That's what it means. Whether you come into the kingdom early or you come in on your deathbed or this guy works in the field of mission field for 30 years and you come in at the end of your life it doesn't matter everybody gets the same reward and what is that reward eternal life Think that's a good reward? You going to argue about that? You think somebody's going to get more eternal life than you? He got a bigger slice of eternal life, right? Here's the blessing as I see it. And I believe as Christ taught in the Gospels, everyone will get the same thing in the end. 
everlasting life with Christ. His righteousness, His glory, His life. And that should motivate us to a life of faithfulness in the here and now. We can endure any trial, right? Why? What awaits us on the other side? Eternal life. Eternal life with our Savior. So if you've become jaded or you think, well, that's not such a big deal. not that great of a blessing. If you're suffering now and and you're in the midst of your test or your trial, think on this. John MacArthur said this, and it really struck me, and I wanted to share it with you. He says, biblically, eternal life speaks not only of the promise of life in the age to come, but also of the quality of life that is characteristic of people who live in that age. It signifies quality as much as duration. It's not just living forever. Eternal life is being alive to the realm where God dwells. It is walking with the living God in an unending communion. Is that something to look forward to? Is that worth the trade-off? Amen. That is a reward worth having. What would you give to obtain that reward? So two blessings so far. The process of approval, the promise of life, and finally, the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. Notice the last part of the verse. It says, which He has promised to those who love Him. As I said, uh, an astute student of the Word would ask the question, where exactly did the Lord promise this? The answer is, I don't know. (laughs) My old pastor used to say, teach thy tongue to say, I do not know. And this is one of those cases where I don't know. Uh, Some people have suggested that it's inferred in or it's derived from the general teachings of the Gospels. But there's no specific passage that can be cited. And more likely is that it was not in the canonical Gospels, but that it was maintained as tradition by some other means. You know, there are a lot of things that Jesus did, many signs he performed, and many things he taught that were not recorded for us in the Gospels. Isn't that what John tells us in 21-25? You know, there aren't enough scrolls to write down everything he did. But the point I wanted to make here is encapsulated in the last phrase. Look at that little phrase. To those who love Him. You see that? These things are promised to those who love Him. It's a very unusual description of the people of God. The expression is used again over in chapter 2, verse 5 of James.
chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? It only shows up a couple of times in the Old Testament. It's a very unusual phrase. Deuteronomy 7, 9 and Daniel 9, 4. You can check that out on your own. The word for love here is the common verb agapao. Uh, It's in the present active participle form here. In other words, it's an action that began in the past with ongoing present results. uh, And it's describing the action of God's people loving him. It's, It's the loving that describes the Lord's people. That's ongoing love for their Savior. In other words, the promise is limited to those who are loving Him actively. One writer said, The love of the Lord appears in James as real and as the eternal nature of faith. It proves itself by endurance and perseverance in the faith, and that is why it is approved and rewarded. And said another way, the promise of the crown of life is for those who have an abiding, ongoing, loving relationship with Christ. And who endure in the faith through life's trials as they come. It's for those who love Christ and only for those who love Him. It's exclusive. In other words, the blessing here is in your relationship with Christ along life's journey and through life's trials. What am I saying? I'm saying you're not alone in your struggles. I hope that encourages you today. You may feel all alone, to be sure. You're never lonelier than when you're facing a head-on trial. But if you know Christ, you are never alone. You have His Spirit indwelling you. You have His abiding presence with you. You have His Word. You are never alone. I mean, think about the Great Commission here, right? Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And then he sticks this in at the end. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're never alone. And that is the blessing, that we have the abiding presence of Christ in the midst of our trials. The commentator Richardson again, he kind of summed all this up and he said, the guiding principle of his, that is James' entire first chapter, is the right understanding of wisdom. 
Right understanding means a life that puts faith and action together. Right understanding means putting the promise of God ahead of the cares of this life and receiving assurance of life to come beyond death. Right understanding about wise action is blessedness. Anything can be endured with this wisdom because the reward of divine life has been secured for the believer. You get that? You can endure anything this life throws at you because of the wisdom that you have in knowing that there's life beyond this life and what awaits you is eternal life and it's with God. You're secure. If you're in Christ, you're secure. Nobody can take that away from you. Romans 8. I have to reference it. Romans 8. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We, are, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. You know, I hear people say often, I can't imagine life without my spouse. I, I hear that because their spouse is on their deathbed and they're about to lose them. But let me ask you a question. Can you say the same thing about Christ? Can you imagine your life without Christ? And what a tremendous Blessing you are missing out on if you don't know him personally. As far as regrets go, I can think of no greater regret that you might have than knowing at the end of your life that you missed out on living this life in relationship with him. My relationship with my wife is great, and I love her to pieces. But what would life be like without my Savior? It would be awful. Listen to me. My relationship with my Savior is life itself. It is life. And it stands at the core of all my other relationships in life. 
And for those of you who have not come to know Christ personally, let me help you here. Aren't you tired of struggling through this life? Have you not had enough of struggling with sin and temptation? Have you not made enough bad choices? Have you not wrecked things enough? Are you passing through this life in an unfulfilled and meaningless existence? Please, I'm begging you, let me help you to be reconciled to God. Reconciliation comes through Jesus Christ. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Let me help you so that you might know what it means to have a rich, fulfilling, purposeful relationship with Christ. If you already know Christ, but you're struggling through a season of trial, I pray you would see the Lord's hand of providence at work in your life. That you would stop. That you would take inventory. That you would count the blessings that are very much yours in the midst of your pain. They're all around you if you'll just take time to look. May God grant you a heart of gratitude and that you would be able to endure patiently the path set before you. I pray this sermon helps you, that you can count your blessings. And as the old hymn writer said, count them one by one. I won't try to sing that for you.